Hello, and welcome from Eric Tornberg and me and Dwayne, co-founders here at Village Global. Today, we'll talk about reinventing manufacturing, reinvigorating American competitiveness, upskilling workers, protecting national security, and winning the space race so freedom rings throughout the solar system. This isn't a theoretical discussion. It's a chat with an audacious founder backed by Village, executing on this bold agenda in conversation with two visionary VCs from Andreessen Horowitz and Lux Capital, who backed the company to the tune of $90 million in the recent Series A. Joining from Andreessen Horowitz today is general partner Catherine Boyle, who invests in American dynamism, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. Joining from Lux Capital is co-founder and managing partner Josh Wolf, who invests to make science fiction into science fact. The founder in our midst today is Chris Power at Hadrian, transforming the U.S. industrial base by supplying components 10 times faster and two times cheaper, first to the space industry, and then to the defense sector, semiconductors, energy, medical devices, and more. With that as backdrop, Chris, we'd love to hear you describe Hadrian. Thanks for the warm welcome, man. Yeah, so we're Hadrian we view as the base-level infrastructure primitive for all of advanced manufacturing. So as AWS, Stripe, Twilio, and all these uh, infrastructure platforms really unlocked a lot of velocity in software land, we're building out Hadrian to abstract all the supply chain problems so that anyone in advanced manufacturing can focus on doing what they do best, building amazing products, shipping engineering innovation really, really quickly without getting slowed down or bogged down by the supply chain. Um, we're starting by building uh, mostly automated, highly efficient factories for high precision space components and using that as a jumping off point to solve a very similar problem for all advanced manufacturing in the country, whether that's, as you said, defense, semiconductor, energy, um, and all those other various industries that need the same innovation in the high precision supply chain to let them move a lot faster with uh, their side of the equation in terms of innovating really quickly. Right. And what's been the response to you uh, announcing your latest momentum and your round? Yeah, so the response has been incredible, both from, uh, you know, customers from all of these key industries reaching out, you know, the ones that we hadn't already been engaging, um, everyone from, you know, buyers in, you know, programs individually to, you know, senior VPs directing the entire supply chain who know that they need to transform their industry and, you know, want a strong partner to do that. So the response from the customer side has been incredible. Um, the response from uh, people working in Web3 or regular SaaS companies um, or in fintech where, you know, maybe some of those companies aren't as real as we thought they once were, reaching out asking, hey, you know, I'm a front-end or back-end software engineer. How can I get involved in deep tech with companies like Hadrian or Anduril and Barter and really looking to like jump ship to, you know, a really important um, industrial side of the equation? And, you know, what do they want to spend the next couple of years working on, you know, optimizing ad clicks or building something in the real world? Um, so that's been incredible. And then, yeah, just the general support of the community at large rallying around the mission has been really incredible. And I think that's a real sea change, especially for our industry and technology, where a couple of years ago, you know, saying the word defense at a uh, San Francisco house party would probably get you kicked out. And now it's top of mind for everyone. And I'm seeing more and more people realize that, you know, the peace through strength strategy is is the real way to preserve peace. And it's not this kind of like aggressive thing. So yeah, all three funds, you know, customers, talent, and then, yeah, the general community rallying around the, the mission and the vision has been really incredible to see. Optimizing ad clicks is your version of, uh, do you want to sell sugar water or do you want to change the world? <laughs> Yeah, so one of my one of my personal values is no dog walking apps. You know, like I truly believe that you could probably delete ninety percent of the VC funded 
you know, random SaaS companies and outside the employee and investor community surrounding that company, like the world really wouldn't, you know, really wouldn't blink or even notice that the company was gone. So yeah, I totally agree. With that, let's hear from the VCs in the room. Uh, Josh, uh, you, you wrote a blog post saying we're, we're no longer tolerating the decline of American industry. Uh, t- talk about uh, the Lux uh, investment thesis for, for Adrian. You know, part of it was like network, like we're mad as hell. We're not going to take it anymore. And uh, Chris <laughs> is amazing. Chris, Chris is amazing for a few reasons. First of all, he fakes the best Australian accent I've ever heard. I've, I've never heard anybody do a better <laughs> Australian accent. Uh, second, I mean, look at this. You know, you have somebody that's championing the rise of American industry, right? The thwarting its decline, who you know comes from Australia, which I just think is a beautiful thing. You look around and you see many of the things that Chris was just talking about. And if you you know forget about the house party in San Francisco, but if you would have just talked about precision machining parts for space ten years ago, people would have been like, "Yeah, sure, I don't know, it sounds like science fiction, right?" I mean, other than SpaceX, you just had this very weak ecosystem of people that were either interested in doing this or that thought there was any demand. And then once you had this economic flip change where the cost per kilogram to launch stuff up into space got so cheap, it suddenly opened and let you know a million flowers bloom. And now you have lots of startups, whether they're manufacturing small spacecraft, they're developing propulsion systems, they're making satellites, they're developing buses to be able to manufacture things in low Earth orbit and bring them back down in inversion capsules. None of that, none of those companies existed in part because the infrastructure didn't exist. And then Chris looked and said, my gosh, you've got, you know, basically an industrial base of 3000 mom and pop shops. And, you know, you meet some of these shops and it's, it's like a family that's been in this business for 50 or 60 years, still working on products that were being made 50 or 60 years ago. And it just, the, the gap between the capacity that exists in the industry and the growing demand fomented by people like us at Lux and people like Catherine and Andreessen, who are now pouring capital into the space and, and finding and funding the talent. It's just, there's like an ever clear present need. And Chris is just super credible. He looked at this, not only as like this macro visionary of, I want to create this capability and I want to do it for geopolitical and moral and value-driven reasons, but he could go all the way down into the uh, microeconomics of the margins and the capacity utilization and having invested in this space before and us having failed, we were like, this guy's got it right. And, and we were just super excited to back him. One other thing I'd say is on the no dog walking apps or sort of, you know, as we call it matter that matters, like a lot of things that are being funded and always will be funded and have been funded sort of depend upon belief. It depends upon other people believing that other people believe ad infinitum. It's certainly true in elements of crypto and and you know in brands and things like that. But whether or not people believe in a precision uh, manufactured component, it doesn't matter. Like it exists or it doesn't. There's no fooling Mother Nature. And so there's something that's you know truly like hard tech, true science, real about what what Chris is pioneering. It's the touch grass VC uh, investment thesis. Uh, reality-based makes, makes a lot of sense. Catherine, I, I want to uh, pass it over to you. This is the first official deal I believe you've done in the, the American Dynamism uh, thesis. Uh, why don't you un- unpack that uh, that investment thesis and, and how uh, Hadrian fits in and explains it? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No. And it's always it's always convenient when a company satisfies multiple aspects of the mission, uh, and, and certainly Hadrian is that. So you know the the way we're describing it is it's 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 companies that support the national interest, and it's everything from aerospace, defense to uh, you know national security to public safety to upskilling the American workforce to logistics, supply chain. 
Um, and all of those words tie into what Hadrian is doing. Um, so the literal definition of, of what Hadrian is doing is, of course, you know, shoring up the supply chain for aerospace and defense. And so in, in that way, it satisfies, you know, the, the biggest bottleneck, as, uh, as Josh just said, uh, to what's happening in the aerospace and defense sectors, where when you talk to companies about uh, what is, you know, deterring their launches, what's making lag times, you know, grow, it, it is this 3000 mom and pop shop issue where, where parts are just not being delivered on time, where there's no visibility into the supply chain. And this problem is getting worse and worse. There's a lot of reasons for why it's getting worse, and we can go into that later. But this is a solution that solves that very literal problem. I'd say that the second thing that, that, I, that I think is in, in some ways even more impactful is this, this question of upskilling the American workforce um, that is, is a problem across all sectors. It's, you know, it's, it's a problem that um, politicians in Washington have been, you know, talking about for, for quite some time. And I think the, the issue is there is not enough meaningful work in this country and there is not enough places where you can go to actually see tangible results of working towards a broader mission, something that Chris and I have talked a lot about. And when you think about what Hadrian is actually doing, it's adding automation so that there can be more jobs uh, so that people can learn a trade that is a very high school trade that's hard. It's both art and science. Um, but, you know, when, when talking to a lot of the people who joined Hadrian uh, in, in recent months, this is the part of the mission that most resonates. It's, it's that you are bringing on um, a, a different type of worker to work alongside, you know, machinists working alongside computer scientists, working alongside engineers in order to solve a very important problem. Uh, and so when you see companies that satisfy multiple aspects of an important mission like American Dynamism, uh, we are just thrilled to, to be along for the journey. And can we dig in on that a little bit? Um, so sometimes we think of automation as eliminating jobs, not elevating people. So Chris, can you tell us specifically how do people learn at Hadrian and how do humans and machines team? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think just taking it back to the macro view in advanced manufacturing, you know, the average age of a worker is late 50s and every year that number goes up. Right, so there are, no, there are no new entrants to the workforce, and yet demand for what they do is growing massively. So, unlike a market like you know self-driving trucks, right, where truly there's kind of a moral quandary if you're an entrepreneur doing self-driving trucks because you automate self-driving trucks and you you automate millions of jobs away of people of you know healthy working age who've got another twenty or thirty years left. Right, in advanced manufacturing, it's simply the fact that there's millions and millions and millions of workers that are retiring out every year. And to retrain those people from scratch, you know, is impossible without automation. So a lot of what we're doing is, you know, and this is why I feel very morally aligned in this is we literally have to do the 80% automation strategy so that we're trying to train 10,000 people, you know, not, not a million people. And that's actually possible, right? So for us, the alignment of, you know, it starts with, well, how can we get machinists to work with software engineers and they understand that the only way to scale out and fix this industry is to automate their own jobs because they understand that we're not, you know, you can't find a hundred great machinists, you can find 30, right? So there's a lot of alignment inside the company around, we have to automate to elevate people instead of just wiping out jobs, right? And I think that's a really important position for people to understand is we're never gonna be able to scale out unless we get to that 80 or 90% automation level and make the tools easy enough where we can train volumes of people without having to spend five years in like an apprenticeship or a journeyman program. That's the other trick. This, this by the way, Chris, this is an important point. If you can explain the idea that these are not, you know, people that are like working hand lathes and like going back to like, you know, our, our fellow nerds in woodshop class, like, you know, the degree of software overtaking from computer automated uh, or aided manufacturing to design 
uh, to digital precision control over some of these devices. I mean, the idea that software people can come into these areas without the requisite training, it might be worth commenting on that. Yeah, so I think that's a really good point is for advanced manufacturing, especially 70 to 80% of the labor tasks are you know, in front of a desk or in front of a CNC machine that's actually running Windows 10, running an incredibly complicated user interface of, and you've got machinists driving these machines in real time, right? So it's very, very software heavy for the workforce already. And a lot of what the people are doing is generating G code or inspection code, which is like, you know, it's like a shitty version of Python, right? You know, so like at some degree and they're doing, you know, trigonometry in their head and like linear algebra and doing this on the fly under pressure. So a lot of it is very close to software land, you know, already. And I think the other, the other thing to understand is for something like automotive, where you're making a thousand of something, it's incredibly easy to set up a discrete manufacturing line that makes things over and over and over again. But for aerospace defense and all these advanced manufacturing industries, we're talking about lot sizes of two to 10 units. Um, which means that the cost to program the machines, you know, is like a significant chunk of the cost of a single part. And all of that problem is actually in software land and coordination land versus like, hey, someone's picking up a block of metal and putting it on the machine. Let's automate that away. That's actually like the last thing we want to automate, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, Catherine, Josh, you, you both think about storytelling a lot. And, and when we as an industry talk about you know, we say things like software is eating the world. Uh, we talk about, you know, use the words automation. Uh, that to people outside of tech sometimes is a scary concept. And so it, it's not obvious when, when you hear automation, oh, more jobs. When we think about storytelling, whether it's the context of, of automation or, or, or tech more broadly, how should we better be telling the story of the impact that tech is having? What, what words should we not be using or, or be using differently that come to mind? I don't know if there's a rebranding more than a re-education. I mean, the canonical example, which I think came from like David Autors at MIT, is like ATM machines. You know, if you thought about a simple thing like bank tellers, you know, bank tellers existed, you know, you go, you swap your money, deposit, you know, take out your checking or whatever. And then all of a sudden these ATM machines came and people were like aghast. My gosh, you know, uh, tellers are going to be uh, replaced. Uh, it's all going to be automated. People are just using their bank cards. And what ended up happening, you know, it's always sort of a fun quiz to do, but uh, I'm going to give you the relative rough numbers, not the absolute exact numbers. It was like 250,000 tellers. And one would imagine that it went down to, I don't know, 200 or 150 or you know 50. Instead, it went up to like over 500,000. And the reason was that uh, ATMs got cheaper. Elements of banking got more efficient. Uh, ATMs were everywhere. And it basically freed up the teller to move into higher value aspects. Yep. And I think it's the same sort of thing that you're going to see here, where technology can free people from doing the rote and routine, and in some cases dangerous, uh, and, and start to unlock human creativity that gets amplified by machines. So I am always very fond uh, of that you know, anecdotal example of the ATMs that it was an example of technology that nobody was ever going back and saying, I'd prefer to use a teller for this. I mean, you know, in some discrete cases, but it just improved efficiency and productivity and freed up the tellers to do other higher value stuff, wealth management, advising, issuing mortgages, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. And, 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 and ATMs run every single corner. So I think you're going to see the same sort of thing here. Technology in the short term can be a little bit disruptive. And in the example that Chris gave of like truck drivers, you know, it's, it's, it's more direct substitution. Uh, and in most of these virtuous cases, it's a technology that ended up uh, you know, increasing the total number of jobs in the field. I, I agree. And I'll give you a direct point is 
you know, usually a machinist starts their shift and they're trying to set up a job. And the first couple of hours are literally like running around trying to find the work holding or trying to find the one specific cutting tool that they need to run the job. And it's a complete waste of time. That type of work sucks and it's annoying because it's just like the tool should have been in the machine already. Bob's got the tool. You have to run around and figure it out. That's the type of activity which is actually incredibly inefficient that we've solved through software automating, you know, routing tools throughout the factory as part of the product. And that's something that like no machinist wants to do. It's incredibly annoying. And now they get to spend that three hours working on more and more complex problems as just said. And that's the type of activity that we are focused on automating, not the super high value human stuff, which is actually very hard for computers to do at the end of the day. I'll add though, you know, to, to your, your question about why has tech been bad at telling the story? I actually think we have been a little bit flip in how we've told the story over the years and, and by not telling it. Uh, by not, you know, by just saying, oh, you don't understand technology person in middle America that lost your job because of private equity shops. Uh, like, like, but it, it'll help you. And oh, and by the way, like, you're going to learn to code. Everything's going to be fine. I mean, that is a story that does not <laughs> resonate uh, with, with most people in middle America. And I think we've actually done a very poor job of explaining the difference between, you know, a 20 year type of finance or, or 30 years of, of, of roll ups of people losing their jobs in the name of efficiency, which is very different than what tech does, which creates abundance. Like when we talk about like what the difference between what Hadrian is doing now versus what a lot of others have done trying to, to, to do rollups in the space, it is creating more workers. It's creating more parts. It's doing things faster and cheaper through automation uh, that will ultimately create more jobs. And I think we have to be good at telling that story. I think part of the reason why Chris is so special and so serious is because he is excellent at explaining that story to people. Uh, but we have we, you know, tech tech is now at this point where we can no longer just say, you know, you'll you'll understand it when you see it. Don't worry about it. And I actually think like 20 years of doing that has been detrimental for everyone who's working on these important missions. I, I agree, but also I, I think there's a there is a element where both the private equity and the software world coming from kind of elite, you know, coastal cities has actually had this weird attitude of you work with your hands. I don't want to explain this to you because I have a PhD or an MBA. Yeah. Um, so I think we are bad at telling that story, but I honestly think for the last eight years, the the attitude from both of those communities has been very much looking down on flyover states. And that is not the right, that is not the way to bring people along for the journey. And I think that cultural aspect of Hadrian where, you know, everyone eats lunch at the same table or whatever, and you have, you know, a Yale graduate with an applied maths degree arguing over the same problem as a machinist who never graduated high school, but coming from a place of respect and on equal footing is literally 90% of the trick. But I do think it's not just the storytelling. I, I, I do think both, coastal elite groups have a real have had a real attitude problem which is hopefully changing now of genuinely thinking that they're better than people in the flyover states when that's just simply not true and, and what i love about what you're doing catherine is um with american dynamism is you know i remember 15 20 years ago i was coming up and there was this big concern about the privatization of government services and there were all these critiques of oh this is gonna what's what's gonna happen if government services get privatized all these people get squeezed out etc and I, I think what american dynamism is is is, is, is saying hey this is how the world is going to be amazing if, if the if private sector starts to contribute into, uh, you know, uh, into ameliorating, you know, helping some of these, you know, of, of central services. Yeah, no, and, and it's and it's it's not necessarily even a choice at this point. I mean, it's it's a fifty-year trend of privatization that I think everyone just has to understand is is happening. And you know, that's fine for you know, aerospace and defense have always been privatized. That's always been sort of the history of you know it, that that you, there's a procurement methodology for government to work with a lot of these companies. Uh, but beyond even aerospace and defense, like there are now civic functions that we know 
Silicon Valley technologists and technologists around the country can do better. Uh, and so, you know, this is, I think it's, it's, a, it's a broad thesis that shows that actually the most talented people in America and outside of America, uh, to, 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 to Josh's point about like it, it took, it's taking an Australian to come in and, and, and actually, you know, shore up this, shore up this defense base. Like, like it, this is something that people care about and they're doing it in the private sector. And so the response to it from Washington, the response to it from government needs to be working hand in hand with the private sector. And I think uh, we're seeing more of it. It's exciting. Um, and we shouldn't look at it as a negative thing. Catherine, I don't want to distort your term at all. Cause I, I love it. The American dynamism. It's interesting. We talk about the branding, you know, private equity was a beautiful rebranding over leverage buyouts, right? Which was basically like, <laughs> how do we, how do we put debt on companies, effectively mortgage a company loaded with debt? And then what do you do? You need to service that debt. So what are we going to do? We're going to cut the biggest expense. What's the biggest expense? Labor, right? And so private equity being lumped in with venture capital, which, you know, for endowments that basically do allocation models are like, okay, PEVC, you know, that's alternatives. You can't invest in liquid stocks. But when Catherine and I are investing in companies, we're putting capital at risk and you're trying to grow those companies and hire and hire and grow workforces and capabilities, whereas private equity is often leveraging the company and coming in and then basically uh, uh, decreasing the workforce to get and squeeze efficiencies and service debt and then flip it. So it's a, it's a very different model. But the other aspect of it is, yes, there is a trend in the word uh, over 50 years of privatization, but the beauty of what, what emotionally is evoked in me when I hear American dynamism is competition. And the beauty of the private markets is competition. And the more competition you have, the better products get, the cheaper they get, and the better the end consumers are. And when you don't have things to private, when you have, you know, at one extreme, a, you know, a Cuba or a Russia, uh, at the other, like totally bureaucratic, uh, crony capitalist captured government services, uh, they just suck. And so, so the beauty to me of privatization and, 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 and true private equity is, is a flourishing of competition. Yeah, no, no, I, I I love hearing that. And real competition, to your point, not the competition that the government likes to say of five primes that have been around for hundreds of years or 100 years since the 1920s, uh, competing against each other for contracts, but actually saying, well, you take this one, I'll take that one, like actual competition, okay. where the best technologists and the best talent, which is what this war is really about, is where are the most talented people in this country going to work? Uh, you know, that that is that is the core question. So real no, competition, no. real talent. Now, now, a beautiful thing about the existence of Chris and Hadrian is you know five years ago pre Hadrian and you think five years from now post there are going to be a ton of aerospace and defense companies that are all competing with each other and they're able to do it because they're able to do it more efficiently they can raise capital from VCs like us respectively and then they can go forth they've now effectively taken what would have been their own capex decisions and made it an opex decision and shifted it over to Chris and uh, they can rapidly iterate you know one of our companies calls it agile aerospace so we're stealing the term from software. But that is just going to create this great flourishing and and and, um, and that kind of standardization and access to something that didn't exist before is is uh, is the virtue of competition. Totally. One of the other very exciting things about about Hadrian, of course, is that it involves uh, you know bits and, and atoms. Uh, and, and Peter Thiel famously you know lamented a decade or so ago that uh, we made tremendous you know progress in the world of bits, but but not in the world of of atoms. W what is the why now for 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 companies that that can use uh, use both as you think about it, uh, Josh and Catherine? Uh, the, the why now on on uh, on on physical matter in yeah. many cases if you look at things like you know additive manufacturing breakthroughs in material science elements of material science that came in part because of software discovery where you could do rapid combinatorial chemistry and predict things in silico and then make them 
Uh, a lot of the increased precision that you get from digital control over things gives you increased precision uh, and performance in, in, in both material sets and devices. We see this undeniable, what we call these arrows of progress, but trend towards things that were once mechanical moving parts to things that become solid state. And you see that, whether it's in semiconductors and electronics, whether it's in radar and satellite, but you just have this trend where if you really think about what the essence of technology is, it's knowledge embedded into some system. And so more, if you have more moving parts in a, in a system, uh, it's arguably less knowledge than something that's the functionality is embedded in the materials themselves. And so we see it as this nexus between you know, digital design, CAD design, software controlled systems, software controlled radios and antennas that get embedded into the physical elements themselves. And so it's, um, you know, it's a beautiful time at the, for the mix of the two. Yeah, I think on, on top of that, there's also sort of two macro issues or two events that I think are, are kind of making people realize how important uh, the physical world is. One, there was sort of this, you know, sort of this thesis, I, I think probably for the last 10 years in Silicon Valley, that we were sort of post-state, post-nation state, uh, that, that everything was moving online. And of course, what's happening in Ukraine is, has kind of proven that that is not the case, that there, there is still sort of an issue with borders. There's still sort of an issue uh, of, of nation states actually being important. Um, and then second, I think that there's also this view of coming out of COVID, people realize that the virtual world did save us, but the physical world also does matter. Um, and that's things like healthcare, that's things like housing, uh, that's things like, you know, like the virtual world and, and, and the movement to remote work has allowed us to have a more federalist society where people can move to various states, as I have uh, in the last year. And I think that means that people are taking much more stock of their physical world and realizing that atoms and bits, that they're not in competition with each other, that there's an interplay that's really important. And that the next 10, 20 years coming out of this COVID experience and out of this, you know, we're not post-borders, we're not post-nation state, that there's going to be a movement towards people actually wanting to see the interplay be more important. Yeah. And I, I think to both Josh and Catherine's point of, you know, why bits, you know, uh, sorry, why atoms, not bits is ultimately as a society at a very, very, very macro view, we get to spend intelligent brain time trading pictures of dogs on the internet for millions of dollars because there, there is an abstracted layer of society where there is a fireman, there is a guy that keeps us safe at night, there is a you know person cooking food. Like we've built up this incredibly successful society so that we get to spend brain power on things like Burning Man and crypto and like all these like abstracted software things because effectively the societal infrastructure is there so that I don't have to worry about eating. I can spend time on more esoteric things, right? And I think as a country, we've failed to maintain the culture of seriousness, which is effectively that like, yes, all of this is possible, but at some point that that meta structure of society has to be maintained and eventually it runs out. And what I think we've had over the last 10 years, especially in software land, is we've been so successful as a country, all that infrastructure of society is there. So you grow up as a 20 year old in Silicon Valley thinking that like the hardest problem you've got to solve is like a SaaS, you know, a SaaS customer like yelling at you because you're like code is buggy, right? And now I think people are realizing that like, oh shit, like we have not maintained any of this like core societal infrastructure. Like this is a real, you know, red flashing light in terms of the whole thing and the collapse can come really quickly. And I think that culture of seriousness is going to come back where like there's a healthy respect for, no, the, the guy that is maintaining the fire hydrant outside the factory is just as important as the person, you know, working on esoteric software stuff. Because if you do not have all those societal abstractions and people maintaining that society seriously at each rung, you don't get to do the cool stuff in the future. And I think there's a big, you know, there's a big swathe of 
25 to 35 year olds that are about to find out that like without the maintenance of that culture and society, things can go bad really quickly. And that's also why at a meta level, I think you're going to see more and more people like software engineers from Google as a Hadrian example going, I'm working on really hard engaging problems that are intellectually stimulating. But if I zoom out, everything is going wrong in the real world. I need to go work on something that actually matters. And I think the shock of the Ukraine, the shock of COVID and the shock of all the stuff that Catherine was talking about is going to wake a lot of people up from the matrix. And they're going to realize very, very quickly that they need to spend the next 10 years of their life working on intellectually stimulating hard problems that are going to print money, but that also really matter in the real world. Um, and I think a lot of that is going to happen very quickly. Yeah. And Chris, you paint a really compelling picture for talent to be on these mission-driven problems. And can you talk tactically, how what's it like to work with legacy companies in the ecosystem? In terms of existing machine shops or uh, customers? Yeah, all, all of the above. Because you're a new entrant, and arguably before the commercialization of space, it was hard for startups to be accepted or taken seriously. Yeah, and I think that's driven by competition at the primes level, right? Is five years ago, would like Honeywell or you know Northrop Grumman take a call from a random machining startup saying, hey, I'm going to disrupt your supply base? The answer is probably no. But at a macro level, because you've got companies like SpaceX and Anduril and Vada, uh, and Planet Labs, all these amazing venture-funded companies that are effectively going to be new primes, you know, that's now being driven from the top of, wow, we're, we're losing contracts to SpaceX or we're losing contracts to Planet or something like that. And therefore, all these all this leadership at these, I wouldn't say legacy, legacy companies, just these large primes that haven't had much competition for the last, you know, 10 to 20 years, now are having to move at the product layer a lot faster to keep their business humming. And therefore the pressure is kind of cascading down. And therefore you've got, you know, someone in a supply chain team going, okay, this is a real problem. I'm going to take the risk and adopt a new, a new solution. The other thing is that that engagement with um, older, you know, more legacy industries where they haven't had supply chain disruption for a while is going to take several years. But one of the reasons why Hadrian works right now is because, a lot of these new primes, you know, Anduril, all these other space companies that VCs like Josh and Lux have funded, um, as well as Catherine, is, you know, they are run by innovative people and they are much more willing to adopt a new solution and move a lot faster. And we have to have that core customer base that allows us to then eventually cross the chasm to all these other industries. Um, and that's also why Hadrian's only possible now. If you tried to do this five years ago, you'd just be spinning your wheels and, you know, never get any initial contracts. And both as an operator and then for the um, investors on the call, what's still missing in the ecosystem? What do you wish existed to help you move even faster? I can speak for the operator side. And I think in short, I would say anyone who's a software engineer or an operator who wants to work on really hard, deep tech problems should realize that you don't need special training. You don't need to even think about a transition. You know, if you're a back-end engineer working on Stripe, you can be running mechatronics automation within like 30 days. It's the exact same thing. Most of the problems are just regular software engineering. And yeah, you've got to fight some pretty janky machine APIs because no one's ever used them before. But I think I think that's the main thing is if people realize, I was talking to Macroom from Andrew the other day, and you know, they're hiring a ton of software engineers and you don't need special deep tech training in hardware, like most of it is just software engineering. And I think once people realize that and that they can just jump on board without hesitating of like, I'm um, working in fintech, like how can I transition to a company like Hadrian? The answer that we need to spread is basically you don't, it's all software engineering. You can just jump in and start firing and then we'll unlock that swathe of people who are the next wave coming in to uh, work on all these important problems.
to, to build off that, and this and this goes beyond Hadrian, I think one of the most dangerous myths that we told people over the last 30, 40 years, and of course the government also perpetuated this myth by giving people free money or supposedly free money to go to college, is that everyone needs to go to college. In order to function in American society, everyone needs to have a four-year degree um, and that this is this is a noble goal and that we should be doing everything in our power to make sure that that is true. And what that did was it meant that anyone who had a trade skill, anyone that that wanted to work in a, in a high school trade, it, that wanted to do something with their hands, to do something in the physical world, was told that they were not enough and that they should not want to do that. And I think the biggest thing that we can do is to say, actually, it is really cool to work with your hands and you don't need to go to college. And I actually think the movement of you don't need to go to college to become a software engineer has probably done more good for this country over the last 10 years. And that's going to actually enter the physical world as well. But I think we need to, to make sure that we're not forcing young people who have talents uh, in engineering, who have talents uh, in working with their hands, who want to be skilled tradespeople, that they have to get a four-year degree and that they have to be reading certain books in order to feel worthy. And I do think that that is probably one of the biggest myths that we need to destroy if we're going to see progress over the next next decade. I think that's beautifully said. As a culture, we get what we celebrate. And, you know, on the one hand, if you are just celebrating, you know, celebrities, on the other hand, if you're celebrating the idea that you need, you know, four, six, eight years of elite education, uh, which only increased in cost in part because of the provision of enormous amounts of debt to which the suppliers of said product universities kept raising prices as they rationally should have. So, so I, I agree strongly with that. And I also think a rallying cry, which, you know, Elon has done a good job of this around SpaceX. And I think Chris is going to do it on cutting edge manufacturing for aerospace and defense. And I think there will be an ecosystem of other entrepreneurs and operators and investors that will sing this rallying cry. And I think that people getting excited about making and not just consuming, that we take for granted, just as a sort of cheesy analogy, you know, the surface level superficial that you might take for granted on a person. And obviously there's insane complexity of biology inside of our bodies. You know, I'm looking at a little thing I have in my office here, which is just like a dissection of an iPhone. And the number of components, you know, to, to play on an iPhone and just tinker with, you know, Instagram or whatever, you know, trivial apps or just shop or play video games. But the amount of complexity in physics and chemistry and material science, and even the conversation that we're having now with the complexity of the chemistry in liquid crystals and the optics in the camera and the fiber optic, erbium doped fiber that allows us, you know, to actually send and, and with zero latency communicate with each other and the copper uh, that is powering everything and the lithium ion batteries. I mean, the complexity of the guts of the stuff, which we all take for granted because you just get a, you get a device and you flip it on and it works and you're just on this abstracted uh, application layer. I think the great generations were the builders of semiconductor industry and so forth and, and electronics and laying down fiber optic cable and infrastructure and, and the builders. It's interesting when we think about the race we are pitted against in both a space race with other sovereigns and in particular Russia and China, China is celebrating the new class of heroes. They are telling their people, this is who you should celebrate. They have a 40 episode Netflix equivalent drama. I forget if it's called Silicon Beach or something like that, where there's a Chinese nationalist who has gone to the US, worked in the semiconductor industry, come back and whether he was inspired or stole the IP is rebuilding the semiconductor industry. And he's the hero you know, of like the nation. I mean, we, we just aren't telling those stories and we will, but in part because they will be the true stories 
that are being created by entrepreneurs like Chris, and they just need to be told loudly and publicly, just like you're doing. And and I also think, Josh, that uh, people are going to get a real punch in the face in the real world when they can't buy an iPhone because they can't get a chip or you know or whatever. And I think. That, that slap to the face is how Americans learn, which is great because then we respond and we fix the problem. But like, yeah, that's that's going to come very hard and fast as well when people realize that the real world is not as easy as they thought it was. And, and Chris, you've talked a lot about agility and resilience in supply chains with Hadrian. Do you have any requests for government or Catherine and Josh are also involved in this in terms of changes to industrial policy or, that might help innovation? Yeah, I think... There's there's two big areas where the government can actually have an impact. One is they can do strategic things like the Intel deal in Arizona with you know funding, you know like Operation Warp Speed actually got this right for COVID, which was just pre solving the revenue problem and allowing you know capital companies to take massive amounts of risk and be caught so that they could move a lot faster. Right. So the same thing needs to be done in uh, semiconductor. Pharma especially, there should be an operation warp speed for pharma production to reshore a lot of that because that is of China. But in terms of policy, I actually think we're in a really sticky situation with the, with the talent base to execute on that policy that I don't think the government can do much about, which is, hey, the government can go appellate, you know, allocate capital and say, hey, we're going to front run the semiconductor problem. Let's put $40 billion and you know fund three winners and one of them is going to win, but we're going to have semiconductors, right? But they need to be way more aggressive on uh, immigration and poaching global talent because it's not as simple as throw money at the problem. There are literally not 100 people in America that know how to build a semiconductor plant. And that process knowledge is so scarce that effectively we need to be going out and basically like opening up green cards for anyone who knows how to do this stuff, uh, you know, whether it's ASML or whether it's TSMC or the farmer equivalent or the like industrial supply chain equivalent from like Germany for like machine tools. We need to be going like, like any good startup, go and poaching the top talent and like build, you know, build this supply chain industrial base. And if the government can set up programs that both on immigration and rehouse, you know, rehousing families and helping, you know, companies fund those talent poachings, that's, that's what we really need to do because the capital alone isn't, isn't enough because we do not have the talent in the country at a large enough scale and a specific enough you know, niche to be able to actually execute on these programs. Uh, that's the main problem that I don't think anyone's solving at a rapid enough pace. Okay. So, and you're saying in addition to upskilling the existing talent, we should be um, doing this. And I think I'll credit Jason Kalkanis, who said we should relabel some forms of immigration talent acquisition, right, where we have shortages uh, in the short term. And, and Catherine or Josh, did you have any comments on procurement processes or industrial policy that you wanted to add? Okay. I, I'll just I'll just add that I think that the the best thing that the government can do, and this is more theoretical than practical, is you know state a need, tell the market what it is, and yeah. a superior industrial base and superior technologies are going to come from competition. They're not going to come from decree. Uh, competition comes from free markets, or mostly free markets. And that often comes from human greed, which is not a bad thing in this in this case. So let human greed in competitive markets fund alternatives that are competing on price and performance and whatever the product is, and uh, and let that compete against the existing thing that presumably you know somebody looks at it and says that sucks, and and that's how we get better stuff. So state a need, and then let the market do its thing and get out of the way. 
And I actually think a great example of this where the government has really, you know, done an incredibly good job is the last two NASA administrations where they've taken the attitude of bring back regolith from the moon and we'll pay you X dollars for X amount of regolith and then let the market sort itself out and provide this scaffolding for people to climb up. And it's an incredible example. And honestly, we've seen a lot of not just SpaceX, it's Astrolab building the rover and all these other companies, um, you know, trying to compete for the new International Space Station and all this like lunar and cislunar infrastructure. And that administration, the last couple of administrations has really got that right in, you know, providing an incentive saying this is what we want and letting the market sort itself out. And I think that's a shining example of how it can be done in a public-private partnership incredibly effectively. Wonderful. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Check us out at villageglobal.vc where you can find links and other information about today's episode.